Warning, this podcast contains strong language, uncomfortable themes and irreverent humour. Basically everything you'd expect from a travel podcast named after a toilet in China. No shitting in the toilet. The travel podcast for when you've really lost it. This episode, the world's most famous budget traveller, Kash Bhattacharya, reveals the luxury hostels you must add to your post-COVID bucket list. Linda Martinez from the legendary Beehive Hostel in Rome helps me read out your hostel horror stories. And I reveal the perils of sharing a dorm with a one-man band. I've always considered hostels as the gateway drug of travel. You know, the shady bloke standing on the corner in that dingy part of town, offering you a little something special at a cheap price just to get you hooked. And once you're hooked, you spend every spare moment planning your next fix. The first hostel was opened in 1912 by a guy called Richard Sherman. It was set in a medieval castle overlooking the Rhine in Altina, Germany, and it's still operating today. In many ways, it set the basic principles of hosteling. Stay somewhere cool and travel to places you normally wouldn't be able to afford to. I mean, if it hadn't been for hostels, my first backpacker trip to Europe would have been over in a week. I was travelling at a time when the Aussie dollar was known as the Pacific Peso, trading about 50 cents at the US dollar, I think. Worse if you used one of those crappy money exchange kiosks. But thanks to my YHA card, I was able to venture out of Earl's Court and onto the continent, rather than back to Heathrow to catch the first flight home. Now, on a more recent trip to Swedish Lapland, the hostel in Abisko is the reason I got to see the Northern Lights. The swirling green lights of the Aurora Borealis didn't show up until the third night. I'd have been long gone if I was staying in a hotel. Of course, hostels aren't just an affordable place to lay your head. Most of them have kitchens, giving travellers somewhere to boil water for their pot noodles as well. Just make sure you give the communal pot a good scrub before you use it. Okay, let's not kid ourselves. The low price sometimes attracts the wrong sort of clientele. Your dorm could well be home to the desperate, the lonely, the broke and the broken. Or frat types, spending the money they've saved on accommodation on cheap booze instead. But equally, it could be full of like-minded individuals swapping money-saving tips and sharing stories about the experiences they've had and you're about to have as well. I mean, that's what makes hostels vibrant, chaotic and unpredictable. And when you're young and on the road for the first time, that's kind of intoxicating. Now, I've been travelling long enough to have seen hostels come the full circle. At first, the Youth Hostel Association places were the only game in town. They were cheap, but they were also closed during the day and you had to do a designated chore before you were allowed to leave. It almost felt like you were being punished for staying there. Then the backpack version came along. Again, no frills, but this time with plenty of thrills. They were the travel equivalent of your parents going away for the weekend and you inviting your mates over to work your way through the liquor cabinet. In places like Australia and the US, they were often set in old motels, so there was the added bonus of a pool as well. Now there are luxury hostels, set in stunning locations and decked out like a glossy magazine shoot. In a minute I'm talking to Kash Bhattacharya, who has written two books about the world's coolest hostels, So we'll hear more about that phenomenon then. But having read Cash's books, let me tell you, hostels weren't like that in my day. 
Thankfully, the fundamentals have stayed the same. Hostels provide an affordable place for you to lay your head and a community of fellow travellers who will either set you straight or lead you astray. A few years ago, I was in Bilbao with my daughter. We were staying in an Airbnb in the old town, but there was a hostel just around the corner. It had huge plate glass windows, and when you walked past, you could see the reception in the communal areas. There were groups of backpackers sitting around chatting and laughing on sofas, some with backpacks propped beside them, ready to head off on the next part of their adventure. We must have walked past it a dozen times during our stay, and each time the scene caught my daughter's eye. I said to her, that'll be you and your friends one day, and got really excited about the adventures and misadventures that lay ahead for her. I told her how she'd meet new friends, share advice on where to go, even get the lowdown on finding the cheapest happy hour in town. I gave her a word of warning too. Once you stay in a hostel, there's no going back. My guest today has spent the last 10 years encouraging people to think differently about budget travel. His books, Luxury Hostels of Europe and the Grand Hostels, are guides to the world's most stylish and affordable accommodation. And his award-winning website, budgettraveller.org, is jam-packed with hints and tips on travelling cheaply, authentically and well. His name is Kash Bhattacharya, and he joins me today from Berlin. He's based during COVID as he continues to eat fantastic food, stay in incredible places, have amazing experiences and not spend much money at all. Hey Kash, how's it going? Not bad, Peter. Having a nice cup of coffee, slowly warming my feet up. Autumn's here. I don't know where summer went. Now, we first met, I think, probably about 10 years ago. And even then, you were known as the hostel guy. How did, how did that happen? How did that come about? I guess the whole hostel guy thing came from my student days when I was uh, an international student studying in Dundee in Bonnie, Scotland. And I didn't have a penny to my name. Uh, and all I could dream of was saving my money up for my three jobs. I was working while at university and going traveling. And at that time, this guy called Michael O'Leary, we started the Ryanair revolution where you, you'd be waiting up till 12 o'clock at night, uh, pressing refresh on your computer to see what the latest Ryanair sale was, hoping it would be the two pence return flight sale. Yeah, I remember those. <laughs> those golden days of travel, you know, when, when you really didn't have to measure your backpack and do all these annoying things that he makes us do now and you could just pack your bag and go off somewhere and go to an airport that was 70 kilometers away from (laughs) from the name of the airport i think it was like milan bergamo and i know great old days (laughs) oh my god oslo torp i got burned badly with oslo i had been newly divorced and i met this lovely norwegian lady online and she invited me to oslo and bankrupted me of that weekend because the flight itself was 10 pence return but the bus from Torp Airport, 80 kilometers outside of Oslo to Oslo was about 80 euros. <laughs> oh, Lord. So can you remember the first hostel you stayed in? Yeah, the first hostel I stayed in was in Salzburg. I was 21 and I convinced my friends to join me on a trip to Salzburg because I used to be, believe it or not, a huge Sound of Music fan. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and Yeah, I know. <laughs> I jumped on a plane to Salzburg and ended up at this really cool hostel called the Yoho Hostel, which is famous for its Sound of Music tours. They take you on a bus with all the music and you can sing along to Sound of Music songs. They take you to all the locations and they even show the movie in the hostel. I think they've been showing it for the last 25, 30 years. That's one of the great things about hostels. They're not just a place to sleep in a room with... (laughs) 
12 other people and their smelly laundry. I mean, they offer so much more, don't they? Hostels have changed so much since I started traveling in the early 2000s. It's a heaven and hell difference. Nowadays, you can find swimming pools, you can find cinemas, you can have a 200 pound penthouse suite and the rooftop of the Generator Barcelona. Or you can slum it in the 20, 15 euro dorm on the second floor. It's almost like a cruise ship nowadays. What is it that you love about staying in hostels? For me, it's funny. The older I grew, the more I thought I didn't belong to hostels. I thought it's a generation thing. But I think hostels have changed as I've grown older. They used to be about the 20-something smelly backpackers slumming in dorms. But nowadays, hostels have grown up with us. They still bring a sense of connection and community, which I think we sorely miss, especially times like this when we are living in a cloud of uncertainty and we need human connection more than ever. And I feel that's what I still get that injection of happiness, of community whenever I walk into a hostel. And no matter your race, your color, your creed, your, your age, nobody judges you in a hostel. Everybody's equal. Everybody's out there to have a great time. And I, and I still love that about hostels. Yeah, it's nice to have that experience where you can walk into a room of strangers and all of a sudden you can start up a conversation. People offer advice on where to go, things to do, but just, hey, where are you from? Where have you been? Travel is just such a great conversation starter and, and a hostel common room is you know the perfect place to start a conversation. It's the perfect place. In, in a hostel room, as you said, there's no boundaries, there's no walls. The one question they always ask you, where are you from? I was in Bilbao a couple of years ago with my daughter. She's early teenager now, and we walked past the hostel in the old part of town, and she sort of looked in, and you could see into the common room with sort of people hanging around and chatting and that sort of thing. And I said to her, you know, in a couple of years' time, that's what you and your friends are going to be doing, you know, and make sure you do. Go to a hostel because it's just like the great place to meet someone, to find out where the cheap places to eat, the cheap, well, where you can get the cheapest beer <laughs> in town. I mean, they're the this font of sort of universal knowledge. Cheapest beer and the best characters. That's like a rule that me and Madhav, Serena, we still live by. This is that we always like to go to hostels, not because we don't want to save money, but because we want to re meet real people. And sometimes in the diviest of bars and in the cheapest places, you meet people with real soul and character. Now, you're saying before that um, hostels have changed and matured as you have matured. What do you think <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think brought about these changes? I think the Airbnb effect. When Airbnb came along, everybody said, nah, I'm never going to be the guy who, or girl who sleeps in a stranger's room. Who would pay to sleep in a stranger's house? But guess Airbnb took off and now it's as big or bigger than Expedia and I think people through Airbnb realize that sense of community and connection. And I think hostels already offered that. But the one thing hostels couldn't offer was maybe a slightly higher degree of comfort. And for people like me who have matured in brackets, sometimes you need a good night's sleep. You, you can't hack it in dorms anymore. You can't have the guy stumbling in at 3 a.m. deciding that he must find something in his backpack at that very moment. Exactly. You know, that, that was what, talking about crazy hostel experiences, Paris, St. Christopher's, a uh, guy walks in the dorm at 4 a.m. and decides to open the crisp packet. Yeah. And he's slowly <laughs> munching at it. And it's like Chinese water torture. It's just like, I was like, just eat the bloody crisps and go to fucking sleep, you know. 
you always get that one guy who decides to have his snacks at 4 a.m. So <laughs> that's why private rooms are a big thing. And that's now something you can find in hostels. You can have your own private room, but you can still party till 4 a.m. with the crowd, but then decide to go to sleep and uh, have a good night's sleep. I had that when I did my big trip from London back to Sydney. I stayed in a hostel in uh, Budapest called More Than Ways. I eventually got my own private room because the dorm was right above the bar, which was down below. And it was just like, <laughs> boo, 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 all night. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you said, you love that kind of energy of these places, but you do eventually need a good night's sleep. So if you can kind of get a mix of both, it's good. And I think that's what some of the better hostels do these days. Now, yeah. looking looking through your books, and I recommend everyone get hold of these books. They're fantastic, just as a resource and even just a kind of budget travel porn almost, some of these places. <laughs> now, they, they kind of look like they're out of a design magazine and these incredible locations. Yeah. Do you have any favourites of the hostels that are in your books? I love the gallery in Porto because that was one of the first luxury hostels, as I call them. One of the first I went to, and I remember arriving there. And as any of you have been to Portugal, you get this wonderful, warm welcome and big smile. And uh, this is in a kind of 17th, 18th century manor aristocrat's house. So you've got these beautiful wooden polished floors and an art gallery. So you can see local art from artists in Porto. And they have this beautiful little cozy bar at the bottom where they served me port wine tonics. It was a hot day in, in May and I never had a port tonic in my life and it was just like mind blown. <laughs> I was like, I, after that, I don't drink gin and tonics. I drink port tonics, white port tonics. I'm going to have yeah. to try that. I've never had it either. That sounds amazing. It's a good, good, good lockdown drink. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, that sounds amazing. And I think some of the, the ones up in the Alps look pretty incredible too. There's one in called The Seven Fells. It's in a place in Finnish Lapland. It's the northernmost hostel in the book. And it's one of those hostels where you can see the, the northern lights straight from the dorm bed. I don't know any other hostel in the world that offers that. And you can also see Midnight Sun in July, just before the northern lights kind of start in August. So uh, you experience two amazing phenomenons. And uh, the lady runs it, Tinia. She's a real gem of a lady and a warm-hearted soul. So, yeah, that's one of my other favorite hostels. But I could make, give you a few more. Well, look, just get Cash's books. Every single <laughs> hostel in it will go straight onto your bucket list. Of course, hostels have been hit really hard by this pandemic. It's hard to social distance in a room full of bunks and even, you know, hanging out in kitchens and common rooms, which is, as we said, the highlight of staying in a hostel. Do you think hostels will survive COVID and will they have to change? Unfortunately, the hostels industry has really, really been hit hard by COVID. It's unfortunate because I think the good hostels I know have taken more precautions than anybody to ensure that their guests have a safe and good experience. And I've heard nothing but good positive stories come out this summer post-lockdown of people going and staying in hostels. But there's still a huge misconception about hostels not being safe, about not being clean, which are wrong. And that's something I've been fighting my entire life. My whole life has been dedicated to promoting hostels and telling them that they're the best places to stay. But yeah, hostels have had to change. They've had to reduce their numbers. They've had to convert the dorms into family rooms, private rooms. A lot of hostels now are catering towards people like me, digital nomads, people who are traveling long term, 
And as people are working more and more remotely, which is a trend that I see only increasing in the future, as hopefully governments start realizing that it's not efficient for people to be working from a drab office, but actually giving people the freedom to do their job from wherever they can in the world. Hostels are more and more now catering towards people like that. And we can get incredible deals. Like uh, I know hostels in Lisbon offering uh, long-term rates of 450 euros for a month in a hostel, which give you access to a working space community, nice people. So I do believe that hostels will survive, but I am generally worried. And I think it's really important that in this post-pandemic world of travel, that we support places that have soul, meaning and purpose. And I think if you take away hostels out of travel, you take away the last few bastions of independent travel away of true authentic travel. So it's so important that whenever we do travel, once in a while, we do go and stay in a hostel. Big thanks to Cash for chatting with me. That guy, Sean, has his hostels. Make sure you swing by the website to find a link to his books, Luxury Hostels of Europe and the Grand Hostels. It's hostel porn, but in a family-friendly G-rated form. Now, on to the part of the show where you share your stories. I've put the call out on social media, and once again, you've come up trumps with some great stories. And you won't be surprised to learn that a lot of them made my toes call. I mean, everybody loves a good hostel horror story, especially the person they happen to. They're kind of like a badge of honour, I think, a sign that you've paid your dues as a traveller. Here's just a quickfire selection of some that got sent in. I stayed in a Chinese hostel and got arrested in the middle of the night, says Sharon, a Sydney sider currently living in London. I stayed in one in Kuala Lumpur where all the fire escapes were chained shut and the rooms could be locked from the outside, said Peter from Stockbridge. I stayed in the Guinness Hostel in Dublin and had my underwear stolen. They didn't even give me a free beer, shudders Alaria from Wales. And finally, from Eddie, a Brit living in Spain, I stayed in a hostel on the east coast of Australia where there was a massive party and 31 people woke up missing their eyebrows. Now, I guarantee you that these people have all been dining out on these stories for years, especially Eddie. But I also got an email from Linda who manages the legendary Beehive Hostel in Rome. While I can think of horrifying stories, she says, like someone peeing in the bed or shitting in one of the shared showers or passed out in the garden next to his own vomit, I prefer to focus on more positive stories. Like all the people who have gotten engaged at the Beehive, some have even come back with their kids. Now, Linda's right, of course. There's more to hostels than horror stories. As I mentioned earlier, they can be a real lifeline for travellers. And a lot of times, some of them turn out to be the highlight of your trip. So I thought it'd be fun to get Linda to help me out with your stories and give us the view from the other side of the checking counter, so to speak. She's on the line from Rome. Hi, Linda. How are you? Hi, Peter. Good. Thank you. Now, I imagine COVID's having a pretty big impact on your business. What's it been like? It has had a very big impact on our business and unfortunately not a positive impact. I mean, I could certainly relay a bunch of doom and gloom, which is not really what I want to do right now since we've been living that for eight months. But no, we're hanging in there. We're trying to keep our head above water and, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I can imagine it's being hit really hard. But I guess the positive thing or the hopeful thing is I think the kind of people who stay in hostels are the more adventurous the more you know likely to get out in the world as soon as it's open again so hopefully that means that things will come back pretty quickly for you guys i mean we've already seen that in the sense of the people that have been staying with us since we reopened in june they definitely fit a certain demographic and they're all staying in dorms so go figure while I've got you on the line, would you mind help me out with some of these others listeners letters i just think it'd be nice to get your perspective on things 
Sure. Cool. Now, you'll be pleased to hear that I didn't just get horror stories. People did write in to tell, <laughs> tell me about their favourite hostels too. I had Jeff Brown, who's a travel author, lists his favourite hostels as one that was carved out of rock in Cappadocia and the Magic Hostel in San Cristobal in Mexico, where an unlikely garage door opened up to a courtyard oasis of a hotel. He also went on to say that the person he met trying to find the place ended up one of his best friends. So, you know, that, that's a positive thing as well. Gerben in the Netherlands says his favourite hostel was a hostel in Greymouth in New Zealand. It didn't have any room numbers, but it had room themes instead. Now, I think you've got his story there. Each room was named after an animal, he explains, and everything in that room was decorated with that particular animal. Wall paintings, cuddly toys, bed linen, pictures, even those warm slippers under the feet of the bunk bed. It had a great atmosphere and a credit to the owners. Wow. Maybe something for the Beehive to adapt, maybe. It could have an Italian-themed one, maybe named after a pasta dish or something, <laughs> or a gelato flavour. Then you could have, like, the sort of uh, the right colours. Yeah, no, that sounds like quite a place. Now, Ian from Tier 3 Manchester, when I say Tier 3, that, of course, is the COVID level of Manchester at the moment, not a suburb of Manchester. But anyway, he stayed in a beautiful remote hostel on the Wild Coast in South Africa. There were guided walks to shipwrecks, pony trekking, awesome home-cooked meals and football on the beach with the local kids. A few of the other backpackers there kept going on about a magic box. Eventually, my curiosity got the better of me and I was led behind the bar to a box of particularly potent locally grown dagger. The relaxed vibe intensified for a day or two after that. Now, I was thinking about this. It must be hard for managers because hostels are, of course, very popular with young people, their first trip. They're away from mum and dad. And these kind of things happen. How do you get that balance right between, you know, like obviously you don't want the police busting down the door, but then you want to keep a kind of a relaxed vibe happening? My husband, Steve, and I were actually talking about this the other day, the fact that we're not getting any younger and wondering if we're less relatable to our guests. You know, like, so at some point, maybe they'll be like, who's the old guy at reception, you know? <laughs> but we realized that even when we were younger, we never followed what was trendy anyway. So it's not that we're going out of style. In other words, we've never done what was in style in the first place. So there's no reason to worry now that we're falling out of it. <laughs> so, you know, we just are who we are and we are open to all kinds of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And we really like younger people. So I think that comes across. The next story is from Andrew in Sydney, and he remembers celebrating his 23rd birthday in a hostel in Lausanne. He says, I was sitting next to the clothes dryer to keep warm, drinking beer and feeling sorry for myself when a bunch of people I met at the hostel dragged me off to the pub to celebrate. There were some guys from Adelaide, a woman from Sydney, a couple of German lads and a Danish couple, you know, a bunch. They bought a heap of chocolate and took me to the James Cook pub where we all got hammered. I tried unsuccessfully to shag a Scottish woman I met, but I had to get back to the hostel as it had a closing time. The German guy stayed out and got very pissed. He tried to climb the balcony to get back into the hostel, but fell and broke both his legs. Good times. Okay, a bit of a, bit of a, a dark twist at the end there, but you know what I mean? It's that, that, that sort of people getting together and it's your birthday. It just makes you feel as though you're with family almost. I think that's great about hostels as well. And, the next story is from Richard from Canby Island in the UK. He was in Munich celebrating Oktoberfest, and I think he returned to his hostel to sleep off the booze. I think you've got that story there, yeah. I woke up the next morning to find my bunk covered in scuba gear, <laughs> goggles, snorkel tube, flippers, everything apart from the oxygen tank. To this day, I have no idea how it got there, but something that would 
definitely not happen in a best Western. Exactly, exactly. Only in a hostel. I think he also sent me a story again from Germany, but this time in Heidelberg, where he returned to his dorm to find a Chinese guy struggling to drag his mattress off the top bunk and onto the ground. It was quite a feat, remembers Richard, and for some reason, we just sat there and watched him do it. As he settled onto the mattress, I asked him why. I fall out of two bunk beds last week, two, so I sleep here. One of the funniest and yet tragic things I've ever heard. That kind of leads us into the next story, which addresses the elephant in the room whenever you're talking about hostels. And that's the sort of alcohol and hormone fueled sexy time that goes on in crowded dorms while everyone else is trying to go to sleep. So this one's from Rick in Hayward Heath. I spent a fair bit of time staying in hostels around the world, says Richard, but there's one memory that has always stayed with me. I was staying in a hostel in Surfers Paradise in Australia that had a bit of a reputation as a party place. A few hours after falling asleep on the bottom bunk, the guy sleeping in the bunk above me returned and it obviously pulled. Him and his new companion spent the rest of the night making out, rocking the bunk bed so much that sleep was impossible. The girl left early the next morning. My bunkmate had a well-earned lie-in and I got the next Greyhound bus north feeling absolutely shattered. <laughs> now, how do, I mean, again, I'm interested how you deal with that as a manager because, I mean, I don't know if people complain about that or whether they just accept it as part of the course. You have to have a quiet word with someone. How does, how does that work? <laughs> well, you know, again, this depends on the character of, of a hostel. We have never had an experience like that. We have private rooms, so if people, if that's their intention, they can certainly, you know, be in a private room. Uh, but in the act, but in an actual dorm room, anybody doing anything like that, we've never had any experience like that. You know, and and I'm and I'm afraid as a woman and as a mother, I would probably be giving them an earful if uh, if I got a hold of somebody doing something like that. So, so <laughs> I don't think that would really happen. And if they did, if that did happen, they would really not be happy about my response to that. Yeah, they'd get a stern talking to. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, the next story I've got is from an old traveling buddy of mine, Peter Cruikshank, and he's talking about staying in a YHA hostel in Napoleon in Greece. Now, I'm sure older listeners will remember the days of YHA hostel, uh, YHA hostel. I don't know. I'm having problems saying that. But um, you had to become a member and you could only check in during certain hours. They were closed in the middle of the day. I think their thinking or their rationale was that it would force you to go out and do something rather than just hang around the hostel all day. And you had to do a chore. It could be cleaning the toilet or cleaning the kitchen. Basically, everyone had to line up and get assigned their assigned chore for the day. Anyway, Peter has lifted this from his journal. He says, I arrived in Napoleon, checked out a few places, but the YHA was the cheapest. At only 1,000 drachma a night, well, that tells you how long ago this was. It's still drachma in Greece. We decided to stay there despite its 10-page list of rules, separate dorms and lockout from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. The manager was German and sent us to bed at 11 p.m. At 8 a.m., he woke everyone up playing Kesara Sara on his accordion. Real bastard. I learned my lesson, though, when I spotted the long list of rules at the YHA in Athens. I turned around and headed for the nearest backpackers. Could you imagine that, doling out a list of uh, chores? I would love that, actually. But <laughs> the problem is that, uh, you know, I'm sure those places were dirt, dirt cheap. That was the trade-off for, yeah, for that, yeah. you know. That was exactly. the price you paid. 
<laughs> there's always a price. Exactly. But that that's why they were able to that's why they had to do that. I mean, otherwise there's no way they would have been able to to afford staying open for that matter. They were very austere kind of places. It was like going to summer camp almost, you know, it was it was that kind of vibe rather than the, the kind of modern hostel vibe, which is very communal. It certainly changed for the better, it has to be said. The next story, it's from Sheridan from South London, and it wasn't the manager that spooked her, but rather the resident ghost. She stayed in the Bullis House Hostel in San Antonio, just so you know, if you want to avoid it. The house itself was rather grand, she says, but the girls' dorm was a shitty room that used to be the old carriage house. It smelled funky and had an unsettling vibe, although I couldn't put my finger on why. The first night, I shared the dorm with three other girls, but then they left and it was just me. It didn't feel that way, though. When I had a shower in the decrepit bathroom, I got the distinct feeling that there was someone else there. I had a super quick shower and got the hell out. Here's the spooky bit. When I went back to clean my teeth a few minutes later, the shower curtain had been pulled shut and the water was running again, even though I was certain I'd turned it off. I said hello and got no reply. I took a deep breath and pulled the shower curtain back. There was no one there. I turned the water off again, returned to the dorm feeling extremely unnerved. I grabbed what I needed for the day. I certainly didn't want to hang around. And despite feeling unnerved, returned to use the loo before heading off. You guessed it. The shower curtain was closed and the water was running again. I went on a walking tour of San Antonio and the guy told me a bit of a history of the house. It had been built by General Bullis, who had hunted Native Americans and captured Geronimo. Not a nice guy. He said one of those TV shows about the paranormal had visited too and found a lot of ghostly activity, especially around the carriage house. Now, I'm usually a pretty practical person, but that night, all alone, I was so petrified I couldn't sleep. I actually felt sick and was praying for morning to arrive. When I checked out, I asked the man at reception if the house was haunted and he said, oh yeah, that kind of stuff happens all the time. I told him he could have warned me and promptly checked out. Now, I mean, you're in Rome and it's an old place. So are there any sort of ghostly apparitions around the beehive? No, there aren't any <laughs> any ghosts. I mean, things do disappear at the beehive from time to time, but that has mostly to do with somebody, a mortal live person stealing something. <laughs> has nothing to do with a, with a ghost. Anyone listening to all these stories might come to the conclusion that hostels are sort of dens of drinking and carousing and no one gets any sleep, but it's not always that way. And as we've said before, there's some really positive things about hostels that we really want to focus on. But I thought we'd finish up with Aletha from Western Cape, and she tells how a hostel in Cassis in the Kalenkes National Park near Marseilles helped nurse her back to health after she was stung by a wasp. It stung me while I was hiking in the mountains and I had a really bad allergic reaction, she explains. The hostel manager took me to the hospital and let me stay an extra week. They even cooked for me while my foot was swollen like a balloon. Great people and great views. So there you go. There's a, there's a nice positive story to end on. I think when you're traveling, especially when you first start traveling, it can feel like you've got no one around, especially when something goes wrong. So it's nice to think that a hostel can be that kind of surrogate family for you. Oh, I think it definitely is. We've taken care of a lot of people in 21 years. <laughs> a big thanks to Linda there for helping read out your stories. It was really fascinating to hear her take on hostels, especially her reminder that a lot of good stuff happens at hostels as well. 
Now, to my top five unforgettable hostel experiences. I first put this list together before I chatted to Linda. So as you can imagine, there's a focus on hostel experiences that were unforgettable for all the wrong kinds of reasons. But after our chat, I went back to the list with a view of perhaps slipping in a couple of more positive stories. You know, like the time I stayed on the AF Chapman, a hostel set in a fully rigged ship in the middle of Stockholm Harbour. Or how the Abisca Hotel in Swedish Lapland stuck up meteorological charts listing the best expected times to see the Northern Lights. Or even the time I managed a backpackers for a couple of days in KwaZulu and becoming the most popular guy there because I was generous with the Amarula shots. But then I thought, nah, people don't tune into this podcast here about all the wonderful times I've had. They want to hear how I've suffered. So with that in mind, and in no way meant to diminish Linda's important message, Here's my list of my five most memorable hostel experiences. Number five, Locranza YHA, Isle of Arran in Scotland. On my first visit to the UK, I didn't have time to get up to the Scottish Highlands proper, so I visited the Isle of Arran instead. My guidebook had described it as the Highlands in an island, so I figured I'd be able to get the full Highlands experience and still get my train in Glasgow in a few days' time. Well, the island certainly lived up to its billing. It was cold, misty and miserable, and I was lashed by heavy rain my entire stay. The hostel itself was amazing. I mean, it's set in this old farmhouse with heather-covered hills on three sides and these expansive views across Loch Ranza and the ruins of the 13th century castle beside it. I mean, I would have happily encamped myself in the big common room and contemplated the view all day. But back then, it was an old-school YHA. I got kicked out at 10am and couldn't return until 5. Luckily, there was a pub next door. It had a roaring wood fire, so I spent most of my days there. I'm not sure the pub landlord was too impressed, though, by how long I could make a pint last. Number 4. Yoshida House, Tokyo, Japan Yoshida House was this scruffy gaijin house in Kiba, a rough working-class neighbourhood of Tokyo. Gaijin means foreigner in Japanese, and the hostel was full of travellers from all over the world who'd come to Japan to make money. Most of us staying there were teaching English, so every morning you'd see this bizarre sight of a long line of foreigners in suits and carrying briefcases filing out of this very scruffy hostel and heading to the nearest metro station. Yoshida House was also different to most hostels in that it didn't have bunk beds. Instead, we slept on the tatami mat floor on futons we rolled out each night. The guy on the futon next to me was this American who earned his money busking as a one-man band. He kept his drum with all its assorted attachments behind his head. He was a restless sleeper, and whenever he flailed his arms, he would accidentally set off a cymbal or a hi-hat. He also had a Japanese girlfriend. We knew when she was visiting because he would hang sarongs from the ceiling to form a curtain of sorts around his futon to give them some privacy. That privacy was relative, of course. We could still hear what was happening behind the curtain. And because the strongs weren't long enough to quite reach the floor, I could also see what my neighbour was up to when I laid down to sleep at night. I tried to keep my back to their amorous encounters by sleeping on my side, but occasionally I'd be woken up by a loud crash, bang and wallop. It wasn't just his restless sleeping that set off his drum kit. Number three, Ostello San Frediano, Luca, Italy. As hostels go, San Frediano is pretty cool. It's set in an old convent and it's got this big sweeping marble staircase and the dorms are big and airy. But that's not what made my stay there unforgettable. It was because of the cranky old Indian guy sleeping in the bunk above me. At night, just before he clambered up the ladder to his bed, he would turn around, make sure his ass was level with my face 
and fart every single night. Number two, Chunking Mansions, Hong Kong. Chunking Mansions is this complex of five crumbling 17-floor tower blocks in the heart of Kowloon. It started life back in the 1960s as an upmarket residential estate, but is now a chaotic maze of shops, restaurants, hostels and flats. It's also the first stop in Hong Kong for illegal immigrants, asylum seekers and backpackers down on their luck. I stayed in a hostel on the 16th floor of one of the least salubrious blocks, crammed into a room with 12 other travellers. Just after midnight, the hostel was raided by the immigration police. They burst into the room, shone torches in our faces and said, don't move. One of the officers flicked on the lights and just started to laugh when he saw how packed in we were. We were in so tight, it was impossible for us to move. And finally, my number one unforgettable hostel experience, Banjamasan Homestay in Banjamasan in Indonesia. Banjamasan Homestay sits beside a filthy canal that it looks like it's falling into. It's sticky and humid, and the pillows are so damp that things grow on them. The walls of each dorm were made from plywood that didn't quite reach the ceiling. At night, a family of rats would run along the top of the petition. I think they may have been delirious from poison because they would thump into the wall at the end and land on top of the person unlucky enough to be sleeping on the top bunk. The bathroom was hilarious too. It wasn't tile. Instead, the wooden walls were lined with sheets of orange plastic. There wasn't any taps or a showerhead, just a 44-gallon drum filled with murky water and a plastic cup that you used to scoop out the water and tip over yourself. The drum was filled by a mysterious hose. One of the guests, an English girl, was foolish enough to follow the hose to see where the water came from. She followed it through the hostel all the way out the back and into the filthy canal, just as a dead kitten floated by. She was inconsolable for the rest of her stay. Well, that's it for another episode. A big thanks to Cash and Linda for helping out and for their expertise. Make sure you drop by the notioningintheToilet.com website for links to Cash's books and for more information about Linda and the Beehive. I dropped by the Beehive's Facebook page the other day and saw that they've started a new bagel and bread business to tide them over the second lockdown in Italy. So if you live in Rome, make sure you drop by and buy a bagel or two and uh, help them out. Our next episode is about travelling by other modes of transport. I'm hoping to chat to YouTuber The Travelling Clat about the tuk-tuk he's just bought and is restoring in the Philippines. And I can't wait to hear your stories about your travels on trucks, minivans, motorcycle taxis and every other kind of mode of transport there is out there. Again, drop by noshittingintheToilet.com for info on how you can get those stories to me. Until then, chin up. Thanks to Dolly Parton. Travel is once again back on the horizon. Ciao. No Shitting in the Toilet is a Vagabond Editions production, written, produced, and presented by Peter Moore.